This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. Egyptology is not what it seems. Overlapping timelines, body doubles, and nameless statues have caused mass confusion. But this week, Mary Nell Wyatt Lee helps to unravel the mystery to reveal the face of Moses in the midst of the pharaohs. Because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Shabbat Shalom, Torah fans. Well, Hollywood does it all the time, and apparently so did ancient Egypt. Body doubles, that's what we're talking about. And in the case of ancient Egypt, a body double meant that someone else's body was passed off as a royal mummy. It's true, very interesting stuff coming up with Mary Nell Wyatt Lee on episode three of Moses and the Pharaoh. That's tonight on Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood. But before we get into that, let's see where we are on the astronomically and agriculturally corrected biblical Hebrew calendar. It is the fourth Shabbat in the fourth biblical month. That seems kind of special, so let's bring out a special co-host. Our Ambassador Club Coordinator, Angie Clark. Hello there, Scott. Hello. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Speaking of special things, you really love this book from uh, Mary Nell Wyatt Lee, from which we yes. are getting these episodes and this, these interviews with her. And I know you wanted to bring something out from her book. I did. Uh, it's Battle for the Firstborn, in case you, you guys probably already know about it. But mm -hmm. it's. I started reading it finally, and just the preface alone, uh, I was just so, so overwhelmed with it. So Ron, you know, in all his studies, all his journeys, he had no backing. Nobody believed what he was finding. I mean, he, but he did it anyway. Mm -hmm. He said, he said, you know, I've got to press on because I know this is what the Father is asking of me. And as I was reading that, I was thinking to myself, how many of us out there the Father's speaking something to us and we're afraid to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, this man had so much courage, so we can glean from that. And so I'm like, just do it, just do it. You know, I, I did. Coming out here, there was, I had so many obstacles, but the Father had a plan. And here I am and you know, I'm-, I'm Let's talk about that. So where did you come from? I mean, what, what I did, see, we talked about this before the, the cameras came on and I said, I didn't know you didn't, come out here to, you know, with a job in hand at a rude awakening. No, I but had nothing. Really? Uh, a lady that I had met in Colorado, mm -hmm. she said, I really believe that the Father has something for you out here. Well, I was living in Southwest Louisiana. I was uh, working at an organic farm. And this is no lie, I had $300 to my name. And I'm like, Father, if you want me out there, you'll make a way where there seems to be no way. Long story short, $300 in my bank account. I went to go close it out and I looked and there was over $2,000. I'm like, what? Where did this come from? Well, the state of Colorado decided that they owed me some money because I had lived there previously. <laughs> really? Yes. And so that was my open door. And so I came and stayed with the lady who's Arlene, my, mm -hmm. my dear friend. 
she, um, she, she opened up her home to me, and two months later, I was working for A Rude Awakening. Wow. I came for an interview, and Donna's like, oh, I'm so sorry, we just don't have anything. And I get to the end of the driveway, and I heard the, that voice. And he said, you'll be working there in two weeks. And me and all my wisdom, I said, oh, no, no, she told me there was no job offering. <laughs> well, needless to say, he didn't answer me back, but Seven years later, here I am. Wow, and yeah. so you got a call back? Or was that, was that happened yeah, in the meantime? two weeks later. Just, two weeks later, Donna really? called me back and said, yeah, wow. we, have a, we have a spot for you. So if the Father's speaking you, to you to do something, do it. Yeah, Just you, do it. You know, my wife and my daughter both have a saying that's kind of popularized right now. It's called, do it scared. Do, do it scared. scared. Because that's what Yehovah wants of us. We may be afraid. You don't think the Israelites were afraid? You don't think Moses was of afraid? Of course they were. You don't think Yeshua was afraid? Of course. To go to the cross? Of course he was. It says, Father, if there's any other way, like, you know, of course. Everyone has fears, but we need to do it scared because that's what Yehovah is waiting for us to do he is really to step is. out and say, I, it's like that whole Indiana Jones when he steps out into the cavern and he doesn't see the, that yes. there's a walkway there. It's an optical illusion. Right. He wants us to take that first step, step of faith and just know that we're going to, he's going to carry us. Yeah. And he's saying, okay, now I can trust you. Let's go. Right? I'm, yeah, you're you're so, going to do it my way instead of your own way. Right. Is what so he's it's just an encouragement, us. you know, mm-hmm. to people who are not wanting to do it afraid. Yeah. Do That's an excellent story. Thank you, Andy. You're that's welcome. A, you know, speaking of, uh, of doing it scared, uh, that's what Ron did. And, and we need to really heed that. Like you said, he, he, he just did it. I don't know if he was scared or not. He just did it because Jehovah told him to. <laughs> like Mary Nell says that he, was, he had a very special relationship with the father. Yeah. And uh, just treat him like his friend and talk to him like his friend. So let's, uh, let's take, a, little, uh, take and, a look at what he did uh, or, or what he talks about. And you know, just kudos to Mary Nell and Randall to carry on this, this beautiful story that Ron mm-hmm. has started. Indeed. You let's know? take a look at a bit of that story. Here's what you're gonna see tonight. I believe what set him apart was his Hebrew nose. So his facial, his uh, hereditary facial features yes. that are very different than Egyptian. Yes. Okay. And he was a very handsome man. As we, okay, and we were talking about Deir El-Bari, Hatshepsut's uh, Mortuary Temple. There are, I don't know how many, 50 statues along the front wow. that people say is Hatshepsut. Well... Look at this. Look at that nose. Okay. They mm-hmm. all look like that right here. Yeah, again, that is not what you see in typical Egyptian no. uh, artwork. Right. And they all look the same. They all have the same face. And I believe that all of these statues would have had the name of Moses when he became emperor. Mm. That was the plan because they were not pictures of a woman and they say they're Hatshepsut. Here's one of the statues right here of, uh, I'm I'm positive, this was Moses, and it was made before he was the king, Um, and the name of Thutmose III was put on it at a later later date. Okay, on his belt. uh, belt On his belt, right here. But here is the statue that I, I just tremble when I see it. This is at the Cairo Museum, and, um, when you look at this statue, this is life size. And look at this side profile. Yeah, he, he looks, uh, yeah. 
I, I began to learn how I could distinguish statues of Sinemut or Moses from other statues, strictly from the nose, because they're the Egyptians were different. They had a different style. Yeah, of look. that is clearly something different. And he's so handsome, so terribly handsome. Okay, so that is Mary Nell talking about the face of Moses that that she saw, and that right. uh, how. how she just finds him really handsome. Attractive, He's yes. He's different than all the other uh, Egyptian uh, paintings and all the, the uh, carvings on the wall and all the statues. There's this one guy that doesn't fit. Well, gee, I wonder why he doesn't right. fit because he was the Hebrew He's that was the among Hebrew. them. Hebrew, yes. Wow, amazing stuff. All right. Well, tonight we have something very special in addition to the teaching. Uh, we have just started a new month for our love gift. This is a love gift unlike anything else. I think you've seen this. Uh, this yes. This is from Vera Sharaf. Oh, my. Yeah. Mm. I had the privilege of seeing her on another show that, that, that I saw, and I said, Vera, would you come and tell us your story? Vera Vera is a Holocaust survivor when she was a little kid. And she remembers everything. And of course, her family has shared all the details that she didn't know as a little kid. And she tells us that what was happening then in the 30s and 40s with the Nazis is happening now. We better Shema. It, we, we better Shema here. because it was a collaboration between government and medicine and blaming a certain people group for a disease that was taking over. Or, any, or what mm. they perceived as disease. You know what I'm talking about here. In the last 18 months, people have been villainized for doing, doing or not doing a certain thing related to a certain pandemic that's happening around the world. This cannot be put on YouTube. It cannot be put on Facebook. We usually do that just for the sake of be, paying respect to those who want to give to this ministry and give and get something for, the, for their, right. for their uh, donation, mm -hmm. for a love gift. But this one, we literally cannot put on YouTube. They would tear us down in a minute. That's why we are giving it to you on DVD or Blu-ray. Take this in your hand, something a fact checker can't touch and you pass it to friends because this is the truth. This is the truth from someone who saw it happen from the worst evil in modern mm. times and it's coming again. She is seeing how it is unraveling. She has a warning and what you need to do to avoid falling into a trap. Mm. So there's an extremely important love gift that we have for this month. It is only available this month and only on DVD or Blu-ray. You will not see it on YouTube. You won't see it on the app. You will not see it anywhere only on DVD and Blu-ray, so make sure you get it. Uh, so that is for a love gift of $50 or more. If you'd like to give a little more with a gift of $100 or $300, we have a commercial coming up in just a second that can share more about something we'd like to give you in return. So thank you for that, Angie. Thank you for that wonderful story you just gave. You're quite welcome. Beautiful, all right. So Mary Nell Wyatt Lee helps to unravel the mystery to reveal the face of Moses in the midst of the pharaohs. It's the face of Moses, episode three of our four-part series, Moses and the Pharaohs. Stay tuned. It's very, very unnerving for me to have to dig up those memories. Every month, Michael Rood gives you a special teaching when you donate to our Love Gift program. This month, we are offering a teaching unlike any other. It is a history lesson and it's a warning for your future. This month's teaching is an urgent alert from a survivor of the Holocaust, Vera Sharav, about today's collaboration between medicine and government, the very same type of collaboration she saw firsthand that led to the Holocaust. 
Medicine, when it leaves the private office, the private doctor with you, the patient, is something else entirely. It is weaponized and it has been weaponized. That's what the Nazis did. And to a great extent, this is what's happening now. The world to come with Holocaust survivor Vera Sharav will never be on YouTube and it can never be broadcast. But it is something you need to hear. That's why we're offering it as a gift, as a DVD or a Blu-ray, something you can play over and over again in the privacy of your own home with no one censoring the message. And the only way we can do that is with funding from your donations. So with a donation of $50, we'll send you the world to come as a gift. If you'd like to help the ministry further with a donation of $100, we'll send you the world to come and a hollow bread cover made of silk and embroidered with pomegranates. Or as a special offer for a donation of $300, we'll send you the world to come, the hollow bread cover, and this wonderful key holder with precious stones from Israel. It's a blessing for everyone who enters your home. Along with these beautiful gifts, this teaching, the world to come, may be the most important love gift we have ever offered. You can call us to receive this gift at 888-766-3610. You can order by mail by using the information on your screen. Or you can get your gifts online at monthlylovegift.com. The Chronological Gospels Bible is changing lives all over the world, putting everything the Messiah did in exact chronological order and explaining the behind the scenes truth of what the Messiah did, when he did it, and why. The timing of it all means everything. And now, the Chronological Gospels can be easier on your eyes the larger print edition features 40% larger type, and every page appears exactly the same as the original, so you can follow along with others who have the regular size version. The Chronological Gospels larger print edition also has wider margins to write notes, and the premium quality paper means you can highlight without soaking through. Plus, the larger print edition lies flat, so you can teach without having to hold the book open. The Chronological Gospels Larger Print Edition is a big and beautiful coffee table book, measuring a full 12 inches tall and 9 inches wide. Study the Bible with clarity and ease. I love the size of this book. This is 9 by 12. The paper is, is perfect because it doesn't bleed through when I write on it. I can mark it up, and I always make notes in all my Bibles. Everything is the same place as it is on the smaller version, and I can just stand back and I can teach from it, and it's just, it's the perfect size. I pray thee, of whom speaks this prophet? Order the Chronological Gospels larger print edition by phone or online. You'll get 40% larger type than the original. Call 800-788-7887. That's 800-788-7887 or get the Chronological Gospels Bible Larger Print Edition online at arudawakening.tv slash large. The traditions that we have in modern-day Judaism remind us of what we did in the temple, and some of these traditions go back long before the temple in Jerusalem. It reminds us of when Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, brought forth bread and wine to Abraham when he came back from the slaughter of kings, and 
Melchizedek, the Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, blessed the Most High with the blessing that Abraham then taught to his son Isaac and then was passed down through the generations. Yeshua said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. He gave a tenth of everything because he saw the broken body and the shed blood. Melchizedek, as Abraham and all of his offspring, then continued to say this prayer, this prayer of sanctification. Baruch atah Yehovah, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, homotzi lechem mi Blessed are you, Yehovah, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And Yeshua said, this bread represents my body, which will be broken for you. And this is what Yeshua said the last night that he was with his disciples. This represents his broken body. It was broken for us. And then, the blessing of the wine. Baruchatai Yehovah Elohim Melakalam Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed are you, Yehovah, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And Yeshua said, this is a renewed covenant which will be paid for in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So what do we know of Moses? Well, if we start at the beginning, he was a baby put in a basket in the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter picked him out of the Nile and brought him into the, into, the, uh, into the palace, and he became part of the royal family. Well, what do we know of his family, and how do we know that this was all true? Well, Mary Nell Wiley and Randall Lee, we actually have some evidence of that in your new book called Battle for the Firstborn. There is actually a statue I'm seeing on this page, uh, page 83 mm-hmm. of, this is Moses and his natural mother? No, this is, is Moses this? and the name on the statues. These statues, by the way, let me preface with this. All the uh, statuary and paintings on the walls and all of that are from a formula in ancient Egypt. Okay. You know, they, right. that's why they all kind of look alike. But these statues of a woman with a baby, they appear on the scene right now with the time of Moses because this was on the statue, it says Neferay and Sinamut. Okay. So we know this is Sinamut, who we believe is Moses. Moses yeah. And I said, I believe Neferay, and Ron did too, that Neferay was Hatnefer, I mean, was, excuse me, was uh, Hatshepsut's name you know, before she became um, the royal heir. I see. Uh, it's, it's a, it's so this is the woman that pulled him out of the river. So yes, she it is. is. Even though he did not come to the palace until he was 12, That's until right. he was weaned because yeah. of, of the situations we mentioned in the last episodes. Yes. She is claiming him here as a baby, as a small child right. already, saying, mm-hmm. he's mine, he's coming. He's coming. And we're going to put this in stone, literally. Yeah. And they would make these statues and they would go away in a storehouse for use at a later time, because obviously these statues weren't made overnight. Mm, yeah, you know. yeah these, are, these are elaborate. They're, yes. How big are these, do you know? Well, like this one right here is probably, mm, it's big. But now this one is shorter than me. 
Oh, so uh, they're several yeah. feet tall. I mean, yes. They're, they're uh, we'll put some footage on your uh, bonus reel that I made, you know, in the Cairo Museum showing these statues so you can see the size of them. Oh, wonderful. Okay, yeah. very good. And of course, we, uh, we showed the, the book already, and you can get the book at ronwyatt.com. Ron okay, very good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we're not going to cover everything in these episodes in this book. Goodness. This book is 200 and some pages, so yeah. we want to get everyone to get the book and uh, see all the wonderful details in here. Mm -hmm. One of the details is that, like we mentioned, uh, Moses must have been heir to the throne. Well, ah, it appears that what happened was his adopted grandfather, mm -hmm. um, because he only had the one daughter. There's evidence he might have had a son earlier, but that he died. Oh, and so okay. the only possibility of an heir to the throne would be through the royal daughter, Hatshepsut. And they didn't, they didn't do queens over there, um, ruling countries. So there, the story, as we mentioned, is told of her royal birth and all. But Ron believed that all of the, the writings and everything in that temple were being set up for Moses' name to be put in there when the time mm. was right. And like I said, these are not propaganda places for the public to come and see. So we can put a little more credence in what's in there, but then again, we can't put too much because they are made for the gods to see. They're mortuary temples. And their belief was that um, if your name was written, then you still had an afterlife and that the way to get vengeance on someone was to remove their name from the walls. And, you know, that was it, more important than having a mummy, having a body, was having your name mm. written. And it, it's kind of complicated, but... Um, you know, I've tried to explain it clearly in here because it was hard for me to understand. Now, we mentioned uh, last time that there's some confusion. Uh, you gave the uh, example of Bob and Malcolm mm -hmm. and that if Bob was given a name like Sir Malcolm yeah. later on in his life, mm -hmm. uh, that those are concurrent within one person's uh, lifetime, mm -hmm. not as some were saying that these are two different names, two different time periods, and adding the two, right. that is incorrect. Yes. So there's some name confusion there. So now we have a name for Moses, Senamut. Yes. Uh, Senamut. Right. But then his name gets changed when he is yes. heir. What, what does that change to? All of a sudden, the name Senamut no longer appears on anything. At a certain, and the way we know this is there by year, such and such of the king. All of a sudden, we see a name, Thutmosa, designated the second, because it's the second one that appears. So it appears that he was given the, raised to the position of Thutmose II, but he did not go to, he didn't go to uh, Memphis to rule. It's like his grandfather kept him at home until he was ready to die, all right? Okay. Now, we have the old Pharaoh in the palace. We have Moses as Thutmose II. And as the, most of the second, the old pharaoh, grandpa, he's got to do something to, to protect Egypt. So what he does is he has a co-regent appointed for Moses, okay? So grandpa's still alive. Moses is given the name Thutmose the second as co-regent. But he doesn't move, um, you know, to Memphis. 
but he has a co-regent appointed to him. It's kind of a confusion, you know, it's different. Mm -hmm. But he, Grandpa had to take care of the country. The emperor had to prepare a way for the country to survive. Now a co-regent is like you explained to me off the camera, was like a, a vice president. Well, yeah, something like that. Uh, it's like, I'm the, I'm the king and I rule down here in Thebes. I rule all of United Egypt, but I can't be up here in Memphis almost 400 miles away. Mm. And that is where the military border is with Canaan, and it has to be protected. Thebes is protecting it from the south. They have to have someone up there, but he is subservient to the guy. To like Pontius Pilate and Caesar, yes. same type of thing. Exactly. Okay, very good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. This is so, just for me, not for the right. other. I, I well, no, it's, so. uh, it's, <laughs> this took me a lot of time to figure out. I can imagine. Yeah. But anyhow, Moses was given the name Thutmose, quote unquote, the second. But Thutmose the third was appointed his co-regent in Memphis. But what happened was Moses went and killed an Egyptian. Mm -hmm. And he had to flee. Because as we had talked about earlier, he was really worried um, that his grandfather would realize that he was more loyal to the Hebrews than he would be to the Egyptians. Mm. And he knew his grandfather would probably have him killed, so he fled. And uh, at that point in time, uh, old grandpa, the emperor, was old, and he was ready to die. That's, that's why he... Um, that's why he had appointed a co-regent for Moses. So when Moses fled, how did they handle it? Well, they handled it by, um, it's on the walls at Deir el-Bari, at Hatshepsut's temple, that, that most of the second died. Okay. That's it. There's nothing oh, bad so written about him. That Moses, so Moses died. He disappeared, he's gone, he's dead. Yeah, he's hmm, dead. Missing mm -hmm. in action. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, suddenly the guy who was his co-regent in Memphis, he takes off on his first um, campaign, military campaign, and he uh, conquers the whole area. He becomes the greatest warrior pharaoh in Egyptian history. Mm. That most of the third. And... Um, he, he, well, when he became emperor, his name was Amenhotep II. Okay. Okay. Now, it's confusing, but I'll try to show pictures on the screen of each pharaoh, one, you know, with both names. It's confusing. I, I apologize for that. But, but anyhow, they had to handle that, and pretty, and, and, you know, within a couple of years, the grandfather had died. And this guy becomes pharaoh, and when he becomes pharaoh, he has to appoint a co-regent. And he appoints a man who will become the man who drowned in the Exodus. Ah, so this is the pharaoh to whom Moses says, let my people go. Yes. Wow, okay. Yeah. And um, as you can see on the chart here, it was uh, a number, it, it was 40 years later. You know, when Moses came so back. This lines up? It lines up, yes. Wow, that is amazing. Now, something that a lot of people, I'm sure, ask because, uh, you know, we often are curious about, there's, there's no paintings from first century uh, Judea to give us pictures of uh, the apostles or even right. Yeshua. So 
did, I mean, obviously the Egyptians were very fond of carving people's faces, you know, and yes. that kind of thing. They, they were very, and, yes. and it's quite exacting. I mean, when you see the pictures in your, in your book, they're very different. It's not all one representation of a man or of a woman, but they're very individualized. Yes, they are. So do we have any of Moses? Oh, Other yes. than when he was a baby on that first statue. We do. And what I'd like to do is start out by showing you um, some pictures of Sinemut from his tomb. Um, it, there appear to be practice uh, drawings by practice drawings. practice drawings. Whoever was going <laughs> really? to be drawing, yeah. Okay. Because what they would do is they would draw lines. And what we have on this picture here is pictures of um, Sinemut that are duplicated. He drew it right here, and he goes, hmm, I don't like that. The nose is a little off. And then he scooted over a little and drew it again. You know, huh. and they were found in the rubble, the the rock where his tomb was dug out. And so, it, so in the trash can. It was in the trash can. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so they found it. But um, an interesting thing, as I began to study all these statues, I discovered that they would make statues of a man when he came to the throne as the, say, the um, co-regent, and it. It obviously took a long time to make these. I don't know how long it took them, but they didn't put the name on them right away. They stuck them away in storage, and we know this because they found caches of statues that don't have any names on them. So they would wait until the person came into power? Was mm -hmm. that it? Mm -hmm. okay. okay. Things like that. And so when Moses left and the other guy came to the throne, he took all those statues because he had none of his own. And it appears that it wasn't real important to the Egyptians if the statues really looked like them so much as if their name was on it. Okay. Okay? Because we know the written, the writing of your name perpetuates your, you know, it's better to have your name spoken. Literally written in stone. Yeah. Okay. And mm -hmm. so, anyhow, there's uh, some, quite a few statues of Sinemut. And as we look at these pictures of Sinemut, you can see Randall made this picture right here. It's in the um, it's in the Kimball Museum in Fort Worth, and this statue is probably about that tall. Okay, about two feet. What? Yeah, when you say that, yeah, okay. about two feet. And then this one is in the Brooklyn Museum, and he's obviously a little young fella here. Maybe he's twelve. Maybe yeah, they looks, made that. Yeah, they yeah. look very childlike. And here he looks more like a teenager. But what I want you to focus on is the nose. I believe what set him apart was his Hebrew nose. So his facial, his uh, hereditary facial features yes. that are very different than Egyptian. Yes. Okay. And he was a very handsome man. As we, okay, and we were talking about Deir El Bari, uh, Hatshepsut's mm -hmm. mortuary temple. There are, I don't know how many, 50 statues along the front wow. that people say is Hatshepsut. Well, look at this. Look at that nose. Okay. They mm -hmm. all look like that right here. Yeah, again, that is not what you see in typical Egyptian no. uh, artwork. Right. And they all look the same. They all have the same face. And I believe that all of these statues would have had the name of Moses when he became emperor. Mm. That was the plan. 
because they were not pictures of a woman. And they say they're Hatshepsut. Here's one of the statues right here of, uh, I'm, I'm positive, this was Moses. And it was made before he was the king. Um, and the name of Thutmose the Third was put on it at a later, later date. Okay, on his belt. Uh, belt on his belt okay. right here. But here is the statue that I, I just tremble when I see it. This is at the Cairo Museum. And um, when you look at this statue, this is life-size. And look at this side profile. Yeah, he, he looks, uh, yeah. I, I began to learn how I could distinguish statues of Sinemut or Moses from other statues strictly from the nose because they're the Egyptians were different. They had a different style. Yeah, of look. that is clearly something different. And he's so handsome, so terribly handsome. Wow, that is amazing. I know. So now we know what Moses looked like. Yes, we do. So. Amenhotep, uh, he dies. Yes. And how, so, how, how does this uh, hierarchy go now? Okay, so, we have we started out with Amosa, who was okay. the one who kicked out the Hyksos. Yes. All right. His son, he made his son co-regent. His son's name was Amenhotep the first, and Amenhotep the first. Um, well, uh, he, he as co-regent, he was Amenhotep. When he became the emperor, he took on the name Thutmose, honoring right. the god Toth. While he was in Memphis, he obviously had become an adherent of Toth. But when he moves down here and becomes the emperor, and Moses comes to live in the palace and all, and he has to appoint uh, a co-regent, his co-regent would be Moses. But Moses was still young, and he was, you know, keeping him at home until he died, and then he would go up there. But so Thutmose the second would have been Moses was Moses' name, you know, as co-regent. But yet his, he didn't send him to Memphis yet. I think he was keeping an eye on him, and he appointed a co-regent for Moses, who was already in. Um, it appears that he appointed him maybe two years before one or two years before Moses fled, and he was up there in Memphis. Now, that would have been another reason why Moses would have been afraid, because this guy was up there. Mm, that and makes sense. word would have gotten around. But anyhow, when Amenhotep I slash Thutmose I okay. dies, Moses had already fled. And so when he had fled, um, the man who was known now as Thutmose III steps up to the throne by the name of Amenhotep II. He becomes the emperor. I call the main pharaoh the emperor. And he was a warrior par excellence. He conquered the Mitanni, the Hittites, everybody. And he made Egypt the greatest nation in the known world at that time. So this is the guy who puts Egypt on the map, so to speak. He sure did. Okay. Yes. All because they had the Hyksos war machines and mm. weapons ah, and all yes. of that, you know. So Egypt was now the world conqueror while Moses is over here in Midian. Biden his time for 40 years. Mm. But when Thutmose III 
became Amenhotep II and became the emperor. He had to appoint somebody to be his co-regent in Memphis. And he appointed a man by the, that came to be known to us as Thutmose of the Fourth. Okay. And who is Thutmose of the Fourth? Thutmose, I really don't know where he came from. <laughs> I, really, I really don't. We don't know a whole lot about him, except that he, um, let's see. See, here's a picture of him. And he wrote, I mean, he had a steely maid telling how he had found the Sphinx covered in sand. Hmm. See, like this picture. Interesting. And the Sphinx, the god, Hamarki, or however you pronounce his name, said, if you'll clean the sand from around me, I'll make you Pharaoh. And he did. And so anyhow, they found this, this steely right here. Dr. Um, Ali Hassan, when it, I, I had been wanting a picture, a close-up picture of that forever, and he took me right up to it, and he's talking to us, and then he tells the story about his, his uncle, Salim Hassan, who was the first Egyptian archeologist, and he found this. Hmm. And he was world famous. And I mean, you can Google him, uh, you know, Salim Hassan, and that was his uncle. And um, so, going back to Thutmose III, when he became Amenhotep II, he had an inscription made which tells a story of how he was a uh, train, uh, what do you call it, a priest in training mm -hmm. in the temple of Amun. And that uh, they're proceeding around, they're making a march, all the little um, you know, prophets and priests in training. They're marching along like this, and suddenly the God picks him out of the crowd and says that he will lead the country. He will be the Pharaoh. And the truth of the matter is that you wouldn't need a story like that if you were the rightful heir to the throne. So it's suspicious right there that he has a story telling how he came to the throne. Hmm. And the same with this guy. He comes to the throne that most of the fourth, Amenhotep II, uh, I'm in Hotep the Third. Sorry, he has a story too of why he came to the throne, and it was because this God promised him he would be the the ruler if he'd clean the sand around him. Wow! So those things have to be taken into consideration. All right, that is fascinating, and this leads to another very famous name that we're going to get into. But hang on to that. We're going to come back to that. I love this. I hope you love this. Randall Lee and Mary Nell Wyatley have joined us to tell us all this wonderful stuff from Mary Nell Wyatley's uh, brand new book, Battle for the Firstborn. And I hope you get it. You can find it at ronwyatt.com. And we want to thank you for bringing this to you, to me, to everyone watching this, because it's only you that makes this possible. Donations to A Rude Awakening International make this show possible. So as Michael would say, thank you for shouldering the load, for helping us out. And uh, we'd ask you now to uh, donate to this ministry so we can keep doing this type of thing. We're going to give you a couple of minutes to think about it, pray about it. We'll see you in a couple of minutes. Thank you.
And thank you for supporting Shabbat Night Live. You make it possible to have Mary Nell Wyatt Lee here and Randall Lee. And before the break, we were talking about uh, something that I think people should get a pen and paper to write down because <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of stuff we were mm. talking about here. Or you know what, you could just get the book. Just get the book, <laughs> Battle for the Firstborn. It's all written down and, and you're open to page 158 where it says mm -hmm. a recap of who's in charge. Uh, and, and so that, that's what we wanna really know. Now, we mentioned right before the break this uh, Amen, no, Amenhotep the fourth. Right, no, the third. The, the third. third. Mm -hmm. Okay, and he is, uh, now who's the one that? He became Pharaoh. He became Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. but he, is he the Pharaoh of the Exodus? He is. He's the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Now who knows that? I mean, what, is that common knowledge or is? No, and um, no, and you have to read the evidence to understand it because in Egyptian uh, records, there, a righteous people in their mind. Mm -hmm. They write down things they, the way they want you to remember them. And I remember back in the 90s, there was, it was in the news about a, a history book in Israel where they did not mention the assassination of, was it Menachem Begin? Mm -hmm. Yeah, something like that. They left it out. And so it, it's just an illustration. Okay. You know, it's fake media. It's <laughs> yeah. it's we fake, all fake know. news. Fake news. 4,000 years removed. That's right. Okay. Yeah, so they just put down what they want you to know. Huh. And so. Isn't that interesting? Now, the interesting part about that is not necessarily that he was, well, it is interesting that he was the pharaoh that drowned in the, mm -hmm. you know, in yeah. the Red Sea, but who he appoints yeah. is the big point here because this is the king that or king so to speak mm -hmm. that everyone in the world recognizes yeah. and who is that well let me say this in 1922 um, Carter broke into a tomb in the Valley of the Kings and when he looked in there he saw things uh, that have Nobody's ever seen this. Changed the world. Not. Yeah, it yep. changed the world. They had never even heard of this young young man, and really until then, and his name was Tutankhamun or Tutankhamun. Aha. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now we get to the nitty gritty. This is right on the title yes. of your book, uh, "The Exodus and the Death of the tu of Tutankhamun." Tutankhamun. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and what he was young. He was about nine when his dad came to the throne. So he was. Wait a second. So he was. He was appointed as a co-regent uh -huh. at nine years at, old. At nine years old. And he lived, his dad lived in Thebes. Mm -hmm. And he was sent to Memphis. I mean, the records show that. But he had very strong uh, officials around him that were working in his name. You know, things would say uh, something that was done by King, uh, I'm not King, but by Tutankhamun, were actually done by these other men who were actually under instruction from the King in Thebes. It, it's easy to understand mm. once you get the picture, but um, the once King Tut's tomb was found, the story of his life and telling about him was not accurately portrayed for uh, a reason that's kind of hard to understand. It's, 
Um, okay, this tomb was full of the most magnificent articles that have ever, ever been found in an Egyptian tomb. Well, this is the, the, the you know? sarcophagus that everyone associates with Egyptology is, yes. is King Tut's golden yes. sarcophagus with the crossed hands and all yes. that type of thing. All of those articles, when you look at them closely, the first thing they noticed was the name had been changed on the cartouches. The cartouches, the official name of the pharaoh, they had been changed. All of the things, most of them, um, uh, maybe even all of them, in his tomb belonged to his father because his father had drowned in the Red Sea. Now picture this, um, we know that when the Egyptians would go to war, because of their religious beliefs, they would sometimes take the priesthood of this God and the priesthood of that God with them to give them favor in battle. It appears that it's not written down in this language, but all the evidence uh, points to the fact that Amenhotep III took off after the Israelites and brought with him all of the priesthood of Egypt. Hmm. He needed, he knew the power of the great I am and he needed the power of every God in Egypt. Hmm. And they go and they drowned, every one of them. And word gets back. It's, a, it's, it's 150 miles or more across the Sinai Peninsula but we do know that things have been found up in those mountains where they could signal. So word probably got back pretty quickly. What we have left is a picture of, in Egypt, the priests are gone. That was their whole life, you know, as the priesthood. They're all gone. There's nobody to bury the dead, mm -hmm. yet they're left with the firstborn all dead. And we haven't gone into that, but I think that most of your viewers know about Passover. They know what happened there, that Pharaoh would not let the people go until the final plague, the, the death plague. of the firstborn. Mm -hmm. And from Pharaoh down to the cattle, you know, to the servant, to the cattle. So we have, when he took off, when that Pharaoh took off to, after the Israelites, he left behind him a dead son that he was devastated by. This is why, I could explain why he was so angry and chased Israelites for days across the desert. Yes. And every other family in Egypt was the mm -hmm. same way. So. But now when we, we go we ahead. Jump, well, we jump forward to this tomb being found and, and we find the most magnificent things in this tomb, but yet the tomb is the smallest little thing imaginable. In the diagrams of all the tombs, and here's a, here's a picture. This is Tut's tomb diagram. But then two or three kings later, here it is. They're this long, you know, I'm talking about a diagram and hundreds of feet. Most of the king's tombs were very large, very large with great halls and all. This is a little tomb, very small. And yet all of this stuff was shoved in it, but it wasn't set up. Most of the stuff in all the other tombs, they're set up, they're ready, because that was to be your eternal home. The ba, the ka, which is all explained in here, uh, of the deceased, it could come and go through this tomb as long as its picture was on the wall, as long as its name was on the wall. 
And they really didn't even have to have a mommy, but they would make a mommy if they had to, you know. It didn't have to be him. But anyhow, um, it was it was just, uh, uh, obviously, something happened here. Well, as they began to investigate everything, they found out it didn't have, I mean, it, it, his name had been changed. But before they found his tomb, and this, this is fascinating to me, Carter had been digging and he found a small cache in the side of the cliff and it had um, corn flowers and um, here's a picture of what was found in that, in, in that area. Uh, a floral collar with flowers in it. And these were what they, the people wore at the funerals. So they found these and they thought they already had his tomb. So they were surprised when they found out. To make a long story short, I mean the whole story's in here, but to make a long story short, all these flowers that were in these necklaces and, and collars were only in bloom in March and April. Okay. The time of the Passover. Ah, hmm. Right. And they discovered that, well, let's, let's back up. Normally, the way a body was mummified, it took 70 days. It was soaked in something called natron, which removed everything, dehydrated the body. And then it was mummified. But we found out uh, from, you know, or they found out from the mummy that Tut had been embalmed um, by somebody had no idea what they were doing, and he was completely combusted. His body was burnt up, you know, because all the evidence tells of a um, a funeral that was done not in seventy days, but very quickly. Instead of doing it in a mortuary temple, it was done up in the cliffs, you know, because they had to get him buried. They had a whole nation full of people that had to be buried. And there's more to that story, but I'm not going to tell it because it needs to be understood. Uh, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to say you've got to read the book because it's complicated. <laughs> and I'm not trying to sell books because I don't care <laughs> if I make any money. It's not it. Right. Okay? No, it's just, there's a lot here. There I mean, is to a lot. To explain it adequately would not... Right. Suit in the next, you know, five minutes. Yeah. Right. And so if you look at, like, the picture of the, the funeral mask that was on the young boy, on Tut, who was probably at that time 18, 17, 18, 19 years old, here, next to it, is a picture of Amenhotep III when he was a boy. Hmm. And it looks just like him. It does. It really does. Yeah. But... If you look at a picture of uh, Tut, everybody um, is unaware that that's what he looked like. Mm. He doesn't look like that mask. That's right. No, he doesn't. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And there's more pictures in here of him. So basically what we're saying, is, in case somebody has not made the connection yet, is that the firstborn of the Pharaoh who died in the Exodus was none other than King Tut. That's right. Wow. And, and he wasn't even a king. No, really. he, never, he never really ruled. He was co-regent at, at best. Yeah, there was no crown in his burial. Um, he was uh, young. And 
from what they say about the condition of his mummy was he had a club foot. There were a hundred canes in there, so he must have needed a cane to walk. Hmm. Interesting. I don't, I don't know, but um, it, it, we're, the, the story that is pro projected to the public is very different from what the evidence shows. So does, now Egypt doesn't know King Tut's history, obviously, because their no. chronology is wrong, right? right? Is that it? Yes, yes. Um, when Ron did his chronology, um, well, that was my job. He told me his conclusions and I had to do the chronology and what we did is we started with, uh, you know, the scripture that says that it was, you know, uh, 400 years after, you know, mm -hmm. the fourth year of King Solomon. Right. I can't even remember right now, but you can just put that on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> and so we knew what that date was. So we were able to calculate 1445 to 46 for the date of the Exodus. And then everything else went from there. And it fits, it mm. all fits. So, uh, I mean, I have no doubt that it, there's not even a professional who would even listen to this theory. Mm. But it's backed up, if you read the book, it's backed up. Why do you think Egyptologists don't recognize that? I mean, how can they not, is it just? Okay, I learned, one thing I learned pretty quick when I married Ron. Now remember, I'd only known him, what, a couple months when I married him. I knew nothing about archeology. span The first time I went with him to meet an archeologist, and I'm not gonna tell who this is, because he's still alive. We, we took this man to the airport in uh, Louisville. And while we're sitting there in the airport talking, he says to Ron, now this is a Jewish archeologist, and he knew Ron, and he said, you do things all wrong, Ron. He says, you don't dig. Now, I heard this with my own ears. He says, you don't dig to find out what's there. You do your research and determine what you think needs to be there, and then you make it happen. Now, I heard that myself. Make it happen. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Now, that doesn't sound right. That's what I heard. <laughs> I heard it, and the thing was, Ron had told me that earlier, and I, he's, he even told somebody in some video about that. He said that I wouldn't believe him, but then I heard it from the horse's lips myself. Wow. Yeah, and um, after being around a lot of archeologists and all through the years, they didn't know who I was, but I, you know, Randall and I would go to, their, go to the conventions and everything. I would learn about the, um, well, there's, how do I say this and be nice? They don't, they don't accept being wrong. Mm. And I, I, I don't mean easily, they just don't. They do not. If they've said it, it may as well be written in stone. They won't listen to anything else. So, um, I believe that we are, you know how you now we're talking about vitamins? I believe we have to do our own research. We have to take the available information based on what we believe and fit it in there. And if you believe in the Bible and you take the evidence that's out there and see if it fits. If it doesn't fit, if something doesn't fit, you have to throw it out. You know, that's it. Right. But we're responsible for ourselves. And, and 
this is such a difficult subject right here that it took me a long time to get all the information together. But I believe that anybody can look at this information and make a decision what they believe based on everything that's here. Mm. And there's a lot here. 270 some pages. Mary Nell Wyatt Lee, this is your book, mm-hmm. Battle for the Firstborn, The Exodus and the Death of Tutankhamun. Um, I encourage everyone to get it. It's a wonderful book. I don't think we're done here. Would you stay for yeah. another episode? Sure. Randall Lee, would you mind? Sure. Okay, great, we're gonna come back. We're gonna come back next week and uh, finish the story here. We're gonna give you a little more tidbit. In the meantime, go to ronwyatt.com, get this book. It's a wonderful read. Uh, it's, it's, it's incredibly full of uh, uh, wonderful pictures and information that you've likely never heard anywhere before. So make sure you get that. And thank you again for supporting Shabbat Night Live. Until next week, Shavua Tov, Shabbat Shalom. We'll see you next time. <laughs>